or, you know, intentional, but is not negatively directed by greed or desire, right? Like I kind of have done some meditating and thinking and reflecting lately about, you know, desire and how, what it really feels like and what, like how it really functions, right? So just kind of having my attention on desire and that component to a lot of different experiences, right? Like, so I tried fasting, like lower, like dealing with the desire for hunger or food, primary strong one, and how that, it like arises in my brain and body. Um, And kind of like, what was another one I was doing, like restricting video games, you know, and I could feel the desire to play a video game. That's, I would say that's kind of like pleasurable entertainment, right? Not productive necessarily, but still fun and great, right? Everybody likes to like, likes to be entertained. So but I could feel within all these different things from like a benign or good desire, like the desire for food to like what we might say is a essential part of life to relax and to unwind and, you know, entertainment, but that one can be overdone. So, and then like um, maybe another one might be like the desire or the um, that element in like the things that are, not really necessary. So like caffeine every day, like coffee every day, energy drinks every day. That's a really bad one for me because it's like socially acceptable. And it's like, oh, why not drink caffeine? Everybody drinks caffeine, you know, but I could feel it has a, that desire element to it because it's anything that's really powerful, strong and stimulating is going to create a desire response. And it's going to be create like desire programming and it's going to just it has a really big impact right that's what i'm finding um so i noticed that there's this trend of all these different things these different things in life that are quite enjoyable right a lot, a lot anything that's enjoyable is going to increase the feeling of desire and also like set you down this cascading path of like evolving desire right you give in to one this is the worst part about it you give into one desire they all balloon out of proportion and it goes crazy. Um, so anyways, I've been kind of like thinking about it and experiencing having a lot of frustration, really being frustrated by desire and complete inability to really control it or kind of not be overwhelmed by it, you know? So hopefully okay. that's kind of what's been going on with me lately. All right. Well, you've opened up a whole issue of, of topics that we can can talk about. Um, one is the issue of will. And so um, we'll play with that one for a while, but let's get started with it uh, just a little bit because it's um, it's full of jokes. I like there's some jokes about it that I like. Okay. One of the things that we can use the word will is in fact the will to live this is an important point every one of us um, is confronted with this on occasion but if we realize what life really is it will be there much much more frequently okay so an example of that is imagine that here you are living on uh, a relatively low floor of a high-rise apartment building that someplace in one of the uh, cities that Russia is bombing tonight. 
and your building gets hit, and here you have the whole rest of the building down on you, and there you are laying inside the rubble, and you can hear them digging around way away trying to find uh, uh, to rescue bodies. The question is, how long are you going to hold out? trapped in the rubble of the building that you're um, that is just falling on you what is your will to live okay that same will to live is there with people who are very sick sometimes in the hospital and some people just give up and others will survive because they have the will to live now the question this will to live even no matter how desperate things are, like very, very sick or very heavy weights upon you, and so it's really hard to breathe. <clears throat> the question that I would raise is, is that will to live, is that an intellectual kind of thing? Or is that something very much deeper? In other words, is that part of the adult mind or is it part of the reptilian mind? And the answer to that would be, it would be a combination of of all that you would have to have the will to live intellectually the will to live at the basic level of existence and the will to live basically in the mid-range because you're supposed to because you're supposed to, to stay alive you're not supposed to give up So if we can understand this issue of will to live, then we can understand about the will um, that has to do with desire. Because will and desire are very, very closely related. Now, this will to live that we're talking about in our society, and in fact, almost everywhere, staying alive is a little bit better than dying. And if you've got a choice, <laughs> <laughs> generally people will choose to stay alive the question yeah. is, is do you think or do you know you have a choice because a lot of people don't know that they have a choice and so this is the difference now between getting into free will versus the Christian kind of free will versus do you have free will or not the free will here has to do with whether or not you know you've got choices or not. That in fact, this free will issue is uh, wrapped up with the issues that we have with words like destiny, providence, predicting the future, and whatnot like that. And the answer to that is, is that, well, first off, no one knows the future. But we know that if we go west, we will have different experiences than if we go east. Okay, so if you're going down this path, your future will be whatever is down this path. And if you don't know that you've got a choice about which path to take, then you don't have any free will. In other words, your destiny. So if somebody, every time that somebody calls you a particular name, let us say it's a name from childhood, and sometime around, the, let's say, the age of seven or 10 or something like that, the child doesn't like that name anymore, and he wants to have a new name. 
And then every time someone calls him the old name, he gets angry. And he doesn't have any choice about getting angry because he's not getting what he wants. He wants to have the new name. And people keep by habit, call even aunts and uncles that don't see him very often. They'll call him the name that they've known him by all of this time, and it's kind of hard for them to change it. Every time he gets angry because they won't uh, adhere to what he wants. Yes, Robert, go right ahead. Oh, I have a funny example of that. When I was a little kid, I had a hard time with my R's. So I would introduce myself to the other kids in preschool as Wobbert, not Robert. And so they would call me Wobbert. And I would say, that's not my name, it's Wobbert. It's not Wobbert, it's Wobbert. And, <laughs> and, and, and it created a dilemma and I'd get pretty upset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is exactly what we're uh, talking about in the sense that desire and will are kind of basically the same thing. Mm. Okay, desire and will are almost the same thing. It's only got a bit of perspective difference in it. And so um, one of the things, Corey, that you were talking about indicates that you're, the word that you use when you use the word desire, there's something kind of wrong with it in the sense that you shouldn't desire things. And it is okay for you to have the will to live. Yeah, it's kind of like desire, the negative component to it. Because that's what I'm starting to understand is obviously the Buddha said that there was good desires, right? Like the desire for the noble life. So there are there is some kind of way to do desire right. And then there are there's this negative component that I'm starting to notice that I describe it negatively because it has a kind of a fire element to it. It's like mm -hmm. hot and it's kind of um, yeah. So this desire or really what I'm trying to differentiate is that, you know, a desire that's being acted out in the present moment where you're, it's like, they're, like desires become will in some way, right? Because will is something that we're doing in the present moment. It's action. Desire mm -hmm. is kind of like something that you want. It's a way you feel when something isn't right about something, right? So like there's a process by which desire becomes what you're doing or something, right? So there is a, a way okay. to live with desire or to understand what's a good desire, what's a bad desire, right? There's a fire feeling negative desire, like addiction, compulsion, those kind of things. And then there's like some kind of better way to take action, which doesn't okay. have that fire element. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> Here's... Um... Uh, the, the point then, let me make this, and then Robert, you can come in, you pesky wabbit. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, by the way, very common, mixing R's and W's. So, you were right, Corey, about the Buddha. Let's investigate that, because that's, in fact, what we need to do, and that is the difference between wholesome desire and unwholesome desire. 
or a better way of even saying it, the difference between wise desire and ignorant desire. Because it's not desire itself that's the problem. Liking something and wanting it is not is only a step in the wrong direction. It's when we gotta have it. So there's a difference between the upadana and the tanha. Tanha is meaning I want it. But the upadana means I've got to get it. I've got to have it. Or I've got to become that. Okay, so uh, looking at it from the perspective of Patika Samupada, we can bring it back to the uh, the point that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa makes about wisdom at the point of contact. When something contacts you, then the feelings that you have about it will be wise feelings. Now, one of the points of wisdom that we can look at is twofold. Basically, they're the same thing, but we can look at it from two different directions. One is, is that it is, is it immediately available for us? Or is it something that's going to take a long time or a lot of work or something like that to do? An example of that is somebody who is standing uh, on the street in front of the Sears Tower and desires to go to the top of Sears Tower to take a gander. While he's up there, he has the thought, oh, I wonder what New York City looks like from the uh, Empire State Building. And now he has a desire to go to the Empire State well, going to the top of Sears Tower in Chicago was easy enough. All he had to do was walk in, pay the $5, and go to the top. Now that he's at the top of Sears Tower, wanting to get to the top of um, the Empire State Building, that's going to be quite a haul. And you can't just magically pay $5 and go to the top of the tower. You just can't do it that way. That's not how it works. You've got, a, a, what, five or 600 miles between Chicago and New York. So the physical reality is, is that you can't have what you want. So wanting something that you don't have and cannot have, and want the more you want it, when you can't have it, that's when the desire becomes tanha. Okay, so that's one kind of it. The kind of wanting something that we cannot have. And the best example of that is your average Joe Blow meditator in a meditation course wanting enlightenment. <laughs> and he can't have it. Why? Because he wants it and he doesn't know that he's already got it. And so if you have something but you don't know that you have it and you have to work really hard to get it, now we're going really into the state of delusion. So. This is another point that we can look at, and that is the danger that this is basically the teaching of the Buddha is to recognize what is dukkha and what is not dukkha, because sometimes desire is not dukkha. Then, in fact, the desire would be to get out of the dukkha that you do see. And so it's not desire itself that's unwholesome or unhealthy. It's the ignorance that is involved with it. In the sense of ignorance about what we want and ignorance about how to get what we want. And so if we can begin to work from the perspective of wisdom, then we can recognize, oh, this thing may be dangerous. 
Therefore, let me be very cautious about rushing into it. You've heard that uh, uh, the fools rush in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> okay, this is what we're getting at is be careful about what you want because you might get it and it might be dangerous. And also be careful of what you want because you might not be able to get it. And if you cannot get it, that's another kind of danger on its own. Why? Because if we want something and we cannot get it, look at all the effort and work that we're doing trying to get it and, and we wind up being a failure, we wind up being frustrated, we wind up being in the victim's position because we can't have what we want. So wanting things that we can't have is dangerous. So in all regards, we can think of it in the sense, are we wise enough to see what in our, in our life is dangerous and what is not dangerous so that we can decide to choose what we want. So that that wisdom then, based upon that we choose what we want, rather than choosing what is dangerous for us, because we're not wise. So wisdom then gives us the, uh, the point of, oh, Maybe I should not want this right now, because if I want it, it's going to cause me a lot of effort and a lot of work. Something as simple as Tab just brought me a, uh, a cup of ice water. She could have brought me a Coke, but she brought me ice water. So now that she's brought me ice water and I want a Coke, guess what? No Coke in the house. That's why she brought ice water. Don't have Coke in the house. Or maybe it's a, a wine cooler that I want. No wine coolers in the house. Or maybe it's something in the and the good issue would be Jack uh Johnny Walker Black Label. I want Johnny Walker Black Label. There's none in the house. All I've got is ice water. Will I be comfortable and happy with the ice water? Or do I have to have the Johnny Walker Black? If I have to have the Johnny Walker Black, guess what? If I go down to the place in, in, on the island where they do sell alcohol, they don't have Johnny Walker Black there. It doesn't come to this island. So that means now I got to go all the way to Bangkok, 1,500 kilometers to go get the Johnny Walker Black. And I start walking through various liquor stores in Bangkok. Guess what? No Johnny Walker Black. It's not red, but I want the Johnny Walker Black. Now what am I going to do? Get on a jet plane and go to Los Angeles just to get to, I better go to Kentucky. <laughs> and if I wind up in Kentucky, I might have different kinds of trouble. All because I wanted something that I could not have. Now I know that that's a ridiculous point, but look how many people do very crazy things like this. That they'll go way out of the way to get something that's actually dangerous for them simply because they want it and it's not easily available. So when we work with it from that particular uh, perspective, we can say, okay, well, we'll keep both of these up. Number one is if I get it, will it be dangerous? And number two, if I, if I want it, can I get it? Is it easily available? 
So if the meditation student says, well, never mind about that imaginary enlightenment, let me just sit here and take a deep breath and relax and be a little enlightened and enjoy that. So that's not dangerous. But wanting a very highfalutin kind of magical enlightenment and then not getting it, that's dukkha. But I should make the statement that many, many, many med people who meditate actually wind up giving themselves more dukkha than, uh, than they would have if they hadn't practiced meditation at all. I know, <laughs> I've been there, I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> Robert. So I have a quote from Nietzsche, curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, anything which is a living and not a dying body will have to be an incarnate will to power. It will strive to grow, spread, seize, become predominant, not from any morality or immorality, but because it is living and because life simply is will to power. Exploitation belongs to the essence of what lives as a basic organic function. It is a consequence of the will to power, which is, after all, the will to life. Precisely so. That's a very highfalutin philosopher's version of what I was saying before, which is, is that we have um, uh, life itself is the will to live. That we do have will. That it is a, a, an absolute lie to say that there is no free will. But Christians want you to think of that. They want you to think that God's plan, and you've got to go according to God's plan whether you like it or not. Okay? Well, if that's true, then the thing to do is says, okay, Mr. Christianity, I like God's plan. I got nothing. I got no problem. God did a pretty good job of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't need any more. So, um, this issue of destiny is the issue that we cannot change because God's got a plan. The problem with this is terminology because it wasn't God's plan. It was what the little child, when he was growing up, each one of us took on as a set of rules from all over the place, not necessarily from God. So it's all of our rights, rules, rituals, specifications, standards, and all of that kind of stuff Misty. that defines um, the parent ego state, which then gives us marching orders for the rest of our lives. And Christianity calls this God's plan or God's will or destiny. You are destined to do it that way. And that we have language in our culture that's just, that goes along with that. You probably heard the expression, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Why is that? Well, he might be a really good swordsman at the age of 20. At the age of 40, he's slowing down. And at the age of 60, he's going to get cut in calf. Sometime or another, if he's going to survive, he needs to put that sword down. He has to make a change in his life. He no longer can go around with the sword because somebody's going to be faster and better at it than he is eventually. 
But even that guy, if he lives and continues to live by the sword, the one who cut the first guy in half, he's going to get sliced in half too, unless he puts down the sword. So this is the, the issue of destiny. If we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, then we're going to have to de deal with the results of that behavior, the fruit of our behavior over time. But the teachings of the Buddha show that we can, in fact, put down that sword. We can tear down that wall and make something new. Robert, go ahead. Yeah, so there's also like a game theory aspect to this, I think, too, when it comes to the sword, where, you know, game theory shows that if one person is willing to die by the sword, the other person feels they also must be willing to die by the sword or else they're going to end up dying by the other person's sword. Um, and I think that you know, self-preservation instinct is a big source of people dying by living and dying by the sword, is they feel that they have to lower where they are in the game in order to stay in the game at all. Right, and so the ignorance then is at play. The question is, where is the ignorance? Perhaps the ignorance is continuing to play the game, even though the game is dangerous. And we don't see the game as dangerous. And so we can stop playing the game. In fact, you could say that most businesses is kind of like a game of swordsmanship. That guys will be the CEO of an organization for a few years, he'll be on top. But the underlings are going to maneuver to shove him out. I mean, look how often that happens. I mean, uh, Elon Musk used to be uh, the king of Tesla, and now they've moved him out of the uh, chief post. The same thing happened with almost all of them. I think that, in fact, uh, that it happened. Um, there's a couple examples where it hasn't happened yet with Zuckerberg and um, Bezos, but it'll happen. They'll get shoved off. They'll get moved out of the way. And not only that, but they will be conquered with the same swords that they got on top with. So the right thing to do is to wake up, to take your fortune, and to walk away and leave those guys to run the company without having to bury the bodies. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right. So here's a Go question. Ahead. So if you were in the prisoner's dilemma, right, where... Um, you know, you have two people that are arrested and they were accomplices in a crime and they're told that if they, if, if they, so the, the, the rules of the game are if one person rats out the other person, the other you person the does not rat them right. out, the person that does not rat out gets, um, a much higher sentence than if they both rat each other out, then they both get a reduced sentence. But if they both are quiet, then they both go free, right? Or they have a very reduced sentence. So, you know, what do you think That's the right... That's pretty wishful thinking. Once you get nabbed, it's going to be hard to get out of it. It's better just to go ahead and confess. <laughs> and then you've got a really, really good alibi. <laughs> 
So, so you would recommend the prisoners to both confess? Oh, absolutely. Immediately, if they have done it. And mm -hmm. if they have done it, then you need to immediately figure out how you can prove that you didn't do it. Otherwise, go ahead and confess. Mm -hmm. Now, the will to live will go in and say, well, I am innocent and I will fight it forever. And then, in fact, we have that on a regular basis, basically because DNA is much, much better solid evidence than eyewitness testimony. That, in fact, eyewitness testimony is not necessarily valuable, but that's all we've had for many, many centuries. But, in fact, you could say that if you go into court and say this cop did that while he was arresting me, then nobody's going to listen. But if you take a videotape of that in the court to prove that what you're saying is true, then you'll probably get off. Right. But if you just go ahead uh, and tell the judge, uh, this is a bad, dirty cop. The judge is not, not not only not going to listen to that, but he's probably already friends with this cop. I mean, that cop's been in his courtroom, what, a thousand times in the past 10 years. Sure. And so you're not going to get a better sentence by telling the truth in that regard. Uh, this is a problem with that prisoner's dilemma is because the prisoner's dilemma is something that um, uh, philosophers talk about in philosophy class. And it's not out there getting arrested. Right. It's just a philosophical kind of discussion. The same thing is true with the uh, uh, the trolley car that if, if you don't do anything, five people get run over. And if you do something, one person gets run over. Right. Those are philosophical kinds of things that don't actually happen in real life. But what we're getting back to with with uh, what Corey was talking about, though, is the issue of if we um, stop because we can see the danger that I'm going to get arrested if I keep doing this stuff. Then I will stop doing it. This is the whole point about will is also has to do with choice. To where often desire does not have any choice about it. In other words, once we want something and we really want it and we want it badly, we can actually do one of two things. We can either change by not wanting it, or we can continue to want it and go down that rat hole and wind up in grave danger, like getting arrested for taking it. So the best thing to do is to not worry about what you're going to do when you get arrested. The best thing to do is to worry about how you can prevent yourself from getting arrested. I guess the <clears throat> another interesting component to this whole issue with desire is that desire has a very high appeal to it. It's very appealing. Like that's how desire always compels you. It's like undeniable attraction, right? Um, I like it. <clears throat> so the feeling of Vedana of I like it. Okay, that's the attraction. Yeah. And if and so it's very easy to recognize what is desire because it's so obvious and it's so but wisdom doesn't really have as much of a high appeal to it, so to say, 
a perfect example of this is the other night I was, uh, I've, I've eaten like too late in the evening for a couple nights. Cause I've been like just indulging and it's given me like late night indigestion. And so on this night, on the third night, I, I saw the wisdom component. I was like, if I eat this, it's past 7 PM, it's going to lead to indigestion. I just can almost bet on it. Right. That's so the right. wisdom Your tummy knows that clock and that clock tightens yeah. in and Tommy says, all right, I'm going to give you indigestion. <clears throat> Yeah, normally, normally it's not so known, but this time my stomach was really having issues. It wanted me to know. So I, I can tell um, that I couldn't really tell for sure, but, you know, I, and I knew it was pretty likely. And so I could um, and then I did get very, very, very mild, minor indigestion later on. But anyways, when I had this moment of like seeing the wisdom versus the desire, I could see both of them. And I can see that the wisdom would be to, you know, ignore the desire, just wait it out. Like five minutes later, it'd probably be gone, right? And then I could just move on with maybe going to bed on time or something, something more positive, right? Well, but you instead, don't have to wait five minutes to yeah. move on. Well, I mean, like the desire to. would go away if I didn't indulge it. So the, I could tell with quite easily that the wisdom. No, what I'm getting intense, at is that you did yeah. you did something else though. That in fact, because you didn't indulge it, you went and did something new. Yeah, that's the point. Is that you did take that much effort to go do something else, and then the desire you forgot about it, and so it uh, kind of oh, melted no, no, away. No. I did. I didn't do that. That was what I thought. That was the wisdom thought in the moment of choosing good path, bad path, desire versus like will to to resist the desire. I saw the wise choice. It wasn't appealing at all. Um, so that's that's kind of like what I was talking about with the discussion. There are these decisions where we come to in life where you can see the wise path, right? You can see with wisdom. You can see the consequences the pros and the cons, and you could kind of weigh them against your past decisions. And you could, the wise choice is not very appealing. It's usually kind of like, you know, in that, in that moment last night or whatever, the night before the wisdom was don't eat snacks late at night, or if you do do it very rarely and accept the consequences. But I could see that the wisdom of not eating the sugary treat wasn't very appealing, right? It was kind of cold. It was kind of dark. I could see it was a good idea. But it, no appeal to it at all. So that's a, okay. a modern dilemma. Wisdom isn't appealing a lot of the times. Desire is always appealing. Oh, yeah. okay. I understand what you're saying. Uh, but what I what I said before also <clears throat> applies in this case. So let's have the scenario because what you're doing now is that you're lumping together a suite over a period of time without recognizing that this is actually a choice that you make over and over and over and over and over again. Let us say that you have now opened that sugary treat, but you haven't taken the first bite, but you've already opened it. And so you do take a first bite. While you're taking that first bite, you're saying, did I really want this? Is this as good as my thought of it was before I actually had this bite? 
And what will this bite do to the tummy? And then you chew that one and you swallow it. And then the next bite, you see that uh, sweet sitting on the table and you're, you're asking yourself, shall I take another bite or not? That you don't have to actually eat it all. Now, this is something that happened. I don't know if it happened to you, but it really did happen in the 1950s. And it happens to poor people all the time. And that is that the, the little children in a poor house will always have the idea from their parents that food is valuable. And because of that, mommy has served you something. I actually remember a conversation that I had with my mom and I was about three, maybe four years old when she served something and I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And she told me, listen, you, I have worked for you. I have given you this food. And there are children in India who are starving. And my answer to that was, Mommy, put it in a package and mail it to India. (laughs) 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 But her rule stuck with me, and I see it even now that I am embarrassed to not eat all of the food that Cam serves. That you're supposed to clean your plate. You can't have any dessert until you clean your plate. Okay. Which means that in that snack that you're eating at night, when you open it, now you've got to eat it all. Because you've been taught that. And what I'm advising you to do is to bring that wisdom up with every possible movement that you're making. Can I leave it sitting there on the table? Or do I have to pick it up? Now that I picked it up, do I have to bite it? Now that I bite, bit it and had the taste of it, do I have to swallow it? Now that I've swallowed it, do I, do I um, uh, have to keep that food out on the table or can I go put it in the refrigerator and save it till later? Then in fact, that's one of the ways that I train myself is with the dogs. Often, the last morsel that I eat After I've chewed on it, I'll pull it back out of the mouth and give it to one of the dogs as the last thing. That they get the last piece of food. Okay. But all along, I'm feeding them off of my plate because Tam always fixes more food than I really want to eat. But I've got to clean the plate. (laughs) And so I've got the dog. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that whole idea then now is, is that we have three areas of the brain, all of them involved with this, and all of them have a kind of little war going on. And so the, um, uh, the child's mentality wants the taste of the sweet. Oh, I like it. Once it's open, now there's the rule saying, now that you've opened the sweet, you've got to eat it. And then both of those are fighting with you over the wisdom of what are you actually doing here? And so can you bring the wisdom into every action? How, how, do, how would you do that? How, do, how does one develop a wise mindset or how do we... Um, so like today, 
I feel like I had a moment where I was able to adopt the wise mindset. I came in, my dog had chewed up my cord, and it's a little puppy. So that cute little brown puppy. Uh, Poof, come here. Come here, Poof. Poof. I named her Poof and Honey Badger. Oh, one second. Poof, come here. Poof. <laughs> Look at this little honey badger. Oh. Oh, she's so cute. Oh, he is cute. <laughs> that's that's what oh. seven weeks old, huh? Wow. Yeah, adorable. she's about two months old. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't wait to take her to the fair. You know, maybe have some ladies show some interest. Ultimate cute dog. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm probably not going to do that. But it would be a good idea, too. <laughs> um, All right. Well, one thing that you have to know now that puppies chew. So what you want to yeah. do is leave things in the vicinity of the dog for the dog to chew on. And the things like your uh, uh, power cords that you don't want them to chew on, they the <laughs> Yeah. Put those up. The shoes. Put them up. That's I tried my best. And that's kind of what happened with the wisdom moment was I came in and I had I made two conscious decisions at one point. One was that I didn't want to beat or discipline or hurt the dog at all. She's so tiny. And I've noticed that in other dogs, when I'm raising them, if you kind of discipline them too much or in a certain way, like if you get angry as soon as you come in the door. It gets really bad. You traumatize the dog. So I didn't want to break the little spirit. And that trauma, that's That's the thing, that you're you're wise to it. But most people are not wise to the fact that they traumatize their children by getting the child to behave. Threatening them with violence. Giving them violence, okay? And that's traumatizing. So I'm really glad that at this age for the puppy that you're not traumatizing the little dude. (laughs) Yeah, she's so cute, and I really wanted to, uh, you know, because I feel like I, if you're if, if you're not careful, it's very easy to break the spirit of an animal, and there's a specific kind of feel that you get when you when you have a bond with an animal who is healthy and happy, and that's what I'm trying mm-hmm. to go for. So I made that decision at some point. Um, I think I got mad because she peed on the carpet, just because I I just flew into a rage. Um, I think that's a norm normal thing, or at least it's kind of normal for me. Um, you know, because it's a rented apartment and I, it, it really gets into like money and then emotions and anger. And that's what I've seen everyone else do. So anyways, there's a bad natural habit. That's right. Being angry at a puppy for crapping on the floor is learned behavior. Yeah, because I mean, I just kind of when I rationally thought about it, I just figured the health and happiness of my puppy is worth whatever cost in terms of cables. It's $10 cable, you know, like in terms of uh, little things that maybe I have to replace carpets that I have to wash and shampoo. I'm going to pay those prices and accept the consequences of really having the puppy. Right. I've, I've decided on that ahead of time and I've decided to not get angry and traumatize the puppy. Right. So today when I came in, I had already made the decision that in the future when I run into this heavy, virile, reactive anger emotion, I'm going to be wise. I'm I'm not going to get angry at the dog, right? <clears throat> so today, Correct. that's what it felt like. Okay, yeah. so the Wisdom first thing felt on like that would be facing out. There, 
without us getting into the details of it right now, you've got better things to talk about. But one of the things that I would recommend for you to do is to go online and find out how to potty train puppies. Yeah. Okay, because you're the one who is responsible. The puppy is just crapping because the puppy needs to crap. You're the one who is setting the yeah. rules about where it can be done. Well, she's pretty good already. She's, I would say she's like 80% potty trained, which is really good for her age. Um, usually when she makes a, I think it really has to do with bladder size because she probably can't hold it for very long, but um, she's really good with about it. So what, whenever, there's not really too many problems. Um, so that's really a good part, <clears throat> but I've already decided to try to, yeah, be real gentle as much as I can. Right. That it's not going to do you any good at all to get angry at the puppy. Yeah, for sure. It's not going to do the puppy any good at all. If you can see that, Corey, with the puppy in this case, do you not then be able to see that getting angry is not appropriate in any case, in any place? That's the way to understand anger is, is that it's not ever appropriate and that it shows lack of control because we're unhappy, deeply unhappy, because we can't get what we want. Like the puppy is on the carpet. We don't want that brown spot on the carpet because I'm, I'm responsible. I am responsible for the carpet. Right. But when we recognize that all, the anger itself, is something that we, and it took me years to figure that out. That for quite a while, I was, I could go into the point, <clears throat> and I stayed in this place for years, that I could control my anger, and I knew that I could control it, and I did not get angry until I thought that the anger would be of value to me that I will get my way because of anger. And so I was going around being angry, ignorantly angry, thinking that, oh, if I am angry, I'll get my way. And that was proven finally to me in a very, very ridiculous um, situation. So where my anger prevented me from getting what I wanted rather than uh, allowed me to get what I wanted. In fact, people had to throw me out of the room to shut me up. So that they could go do what I wanted to do, but I couldn't do it because I was angry and the people that I was trying to deal with were not having it. <clears throat> okay, so now I can happily say that there is no place for anger. There is always a better choice than anger. But it takes a while for us to understand that because we, uh, when we're angry, we want our way. And almost always anger is based upon fear. That if you're not afraid of losing something, for instance, you wouldn't have gotten angry at the puppy for crapping on the floor if the carpet wasn't there. That is, in, in fact, carpet being hard to clean is part of the uh, the place for the anger and the fact that you're responsible for that carpet. So we're here in this house, the uh, exact opposite. This is an old house, it's peak floors, the floors are rotting. Uh, we've had many sections of the floor replaced and whatnot like that. So it's kind of a hodgepodge, the um, 
uh, the paint um, or the stain is wearing off of the floors and, and uh, uh, where people put their feet in certain places around the doorway and whatnot like that. And so it's kind of a mess anyway. And so it doesn't matter. There's another issue, and that is, is that the big dogs like to hang out on the, um, uh, the, the, the step landing where it's all concrete and it's really cool, which means now the puppy can't get down and go outside. And so because the puppy is trapped in the house, it's okay with me that the puppy is continuing to crap on the floor, and I'm not even bothering to try to try to train her. Okay, so this is it's a different situation, but really the difference is the mindset between you and me, because I used to be exactly where you were, because that's how my dad operated. But you're supposed to be angry at a puppy because my dad got angry at a puppy. But my dad had no clue about what anger was. He was an unskilled, ordinary person, and I picked up a whole lot of rules from unskilled, ordinary people. And so now it's time to put down all of those rules that we learned from unskilled, ordinary people and start picking up some wise rules based upon the Dhamma. Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. Okay. Then, in fact, if you get angry, you've got Dukkha, and so does the puppy. If you don't get angry, then you can train the puppy easily. That in fact, you're saying the puppy trains themselves. Generally, that's true. We don't have to potty train children. We don't have to potty train dogs. They'll do that on their own. It's natural. But Dr. Spock ruined a whole generation of children. They were called baby boomers <laughs> because of the potty training that was done in the 1950s. Sit down in that pot and give me a turd. And if you don't do it, you're going to be really unhappy until you give me that turd. That's what mommy told me. I mean, <laughs> she read that out of a book. <laughs> That's so demanding. I demand a turd from the child. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the new well, level of potty, Can you imagine? That's what potty training is all about. <laughs> Because yeah. mommy doesn't want to change diapers anymore. This I definitely have noticed there are some kind of like problematic issues with the older generations. Like I, I kind of started to notice it when I would have certain behaviors that were problematic, like dismissing and kind of, you know, belittling my nephews. Uh, things that I, that all the older adults from the older generation would do like normally like uh, kind of like ignore and avoid you while being in the same room um, or kind of like just like there's really subtle things that I wouldn't say are healthy or things that I would do going forward. But so much of the older generation did these to me growing up that they really normalized a lot of bad behaviors. Like they're from the previous generations, specifically like for the farther back you go, that things get more and more messed up. But even one or two generations ago, they had they still had really backwards kind of ways of living and thinking and raising children. Um, like I, re I remember a really common one is kind of this attitude of the child is annoying, right? The child mm -hmm. is annoying. So the parent will occupy you with something or tell you to go to your room. 
literally tell you to go to room. I don't think I ever would tell my nephews to go to their room just because they annoyed me. I would just eat that annoyance. I would sit there and I'd just kind of like deal with it on my own, right? So like with a little bit of the mental training and the understanding, um, you know, I could see kind of like what normal, good, healthy behavior would look like because I could feel the anger or the annoyance rise up and I could be mindful of, of it and then let it pass with a little bit of thought and mind control, right? But mm -hmm. the older generations, they don't really have that training. They're more reactionary and reactive. And like these trends of behavior that, you know, they, a lot of them generate or they start from books like Dr. Spock or other ones, big pivotal books or things that change the mindset of a generation. And then, yeah, they lead to these kind of like problematic behaviors that a lot of us can notice because it's like the trickle down effect, you know? And um, yeah, like kind of being a little bit dismissive and um, like heavy, heavy product or, or work based, right? A lot of that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, well, it's kind of interesting, but also refreshing that things are changing a bit for the better now. Actually, that's an important point for you to make, and I want to reiterate it really strongly, and that is, um, look at it from this perspective. When did public education start? When did it start? When did public education start? You know? Uh, probably thousands of years ago, like a long time ago. I think they've always yeah. had schools. Well, well like, schools, like today. Public required schools. When did children get required to go to school? Maybe like a hundred years ago or something. Right, exactly. During the 20th century is when children were required to go to school. Now imagine southern Louisiana or perhaps Alabama where children were born in a shack they never travel 10 kilometers from where they were born. Whether they're white or black doesn't make any difference. And in fact, all they learned was local. So they were really, really kind of ignorant that in fact, you could say on one side of the tracks, the black community and on the other side of the tracks were the white community, but both of them, the little children that were coming into those communities because they never went anywhere, never got any education even though they were raised completely differently, they were both raised miserably. And they were raised to hate each other. Right? So that uh, when we have public education, the whole idea of public education is number one, almost all, not all of them, you can't do it always 100%. But now we're raising it from one or two percent of the children getting educated into about 85, maybe 90 percent of them getting some kind of an education. All right. That's basically what has going on now uh, to to put it in a different perspective. You have heard Martin Luther King's favorite um, uh, expression that uh, that the arc of justice is long. Uh, excuse me. The arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The answer to that is no, it is not justice that bends. It's knowledge. 
that over time, humans have become more and more knowledgeable and now look at it in the fact that even the Dhamma is becoming somewhat public knowledge. People are beginning to wake up. Another point was is that psychology and psychiatry and whatnot like that, that didn't get, I mean, they normally, there's two people that are involved with that. One was Dorothy Dix, who you probably never heard of, which started doing psychiatric work in the uh, late 1800s in the United States. And then there was Sigmund Freud. Okay. We don't have much about psychology before that. And in fact, much of the psychology of those times was highly, highly influenced by Greek mythology. So you could go so far back as to say that Greek mythology, when it's used right, is a kind of the psychology. But basically, it's in our, at least in kind of my lifetime, is when so many things have happened. Okay, one, public education. Number two, electricity. Number three, electronics. Number four would be uh, computers and technology in general. We're talking about 100 years ago, even automobiles were quite rare. 120 years ago, they were non-existent. Well, okay, 130 years ago. But anyway, you get the idea of look how much has happened in the past 100 years. Think about it now. In fact, just yesterday, there was a powder power outage that lasted from about 8.30 in the morning till about 6 in the evening. No power, and it was hot. Not only that, but the power... Uh, uh, runs the pump from the well, which meant no water. Now, you guys don't put up with that, but I really uh, understand it, that life, what would life be like without electrical power for you? Your whole life would change. I mean, look at what you do for entertainment. Now, almost always, whatever entertainment you have, you're either going to have to get in an electric, or excuse me, get in the gas-powered vehicle or turn some electrical device on. A computer, a television, a radio, something that did not exist 100 years ago. This is profound to think about that the whole world for the entire human society has changed drastically in the past hundred years. And the children a hundred years ago did not travel, did not get an education, generally did not learn to read. And, and so that meant that almost all of their rites, rules, and rituals came from either their immediate family or the little town that they lived in, perhaps a church. And that was all, 100% of their entire education. No psychology, no history, no mathematics, just the rules of the road. And so look at how much misery there was back then. A lot of misery. So we're much better off now because we have knowledge that I'm very grateful for the knowledge that I got. The most gratitude that I have is for Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan Po because that's where my important knowledge came from. 
the knowledge of the Dhamma. Go ahead, Robert. So, um, so to respond to Corey's point about the dog training, um, I, I would ask, are you familiar with positive reinforcement? With, yeah, uh, dog? yeah, that's what I'll do. When she goes outside, I just give her a little bit of pet and really excited and like, oh, yes, yay. And that's basically all I use. Um, that's all it takes. Yeah. That, so now you're expressing exactly why you're getting your potty trained, where the situation with the other dogs here make it difficult for me to potty train the puppy. And so I'm giving her a break. Right. And, and, and I would say, so it's, so we've recently had a really interesting um, journey in our household here. We have two dogs and uh, we've been sending them to professional dog trainers um, here in Colombia and South America. And, you know, one, one of the things we've learned from them is, you know, when the dog does something wrong, you say no. There's two different types of no's. There is kind of a less stern no and a more stern no. There's the no that is no. There's the no that is no. So we're really trying to get across. And, however, you want to always phrase them, but there are different types of phrases, too. There's muy bien, very good, like good, you know, would be like the English version, which is supposed to be soothing and calming. And you would even give them a muy bien when they're doing the right thing without you even asking them to do anything. Like right now, my dog was here relaxing on the couch next to me, her dogs, and I should say to him, muy bien, because we like him to be in this calm state. But then there's second type of phrase, which is premio, which is where you give them a gift, you give them a treat, that kind of thing. And so, you know, one way you could maybe apply that to your dog is, I'm not sure if she has any treats that she really likes, probably does, most dogs do. Um, and maybe bring some of those with you and take her outside. So when she pees, you can hand her a little treat, you know, so she begins to really associate you know, the treats with peeing outside, and then eventually you won't need to do it anymore. Um, but, you know, once she gets really excited about those treats, she might even hold it in so that she can get the treat <laughs> once she's outside. You know, and I think we can also apply this. Oh, oh, okay. Um, and I think we can also apply this to our own minds, right? Where instead of saying, feeling guilty about being angry at the dog, you know, um, you know, you can. Oh, I'm glad I caught myself. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Never mind. Start again. I'm glad I caught myself. That's great. I caught. <laughs> that's great. I'm choosing not to be annoyed right now. That's great. Mm -hmm. I'm choosing not to be angry or anxious or whatever. And then think about how you're going to reward the dog um, when she does it right, you know, and maybe help her to do it right as soon as possible. Well, one thing about the dogs is, is that they, um, it's part of their DNA. This is something that's very interesting about dogs because a dog is a dog from birth. Puppies are notable, known for, for chewing on things and they learn. But one of the things about a puppy is, is that uh, they will learn to not uh, spoil their own nest. The humans are like that, too. This is why the dogs will naturally want to go out. They naturally want to go out in private. I mean, I've got a couple of dogs here, and I would say the puppy is different because of the situation. 
but for Lucky and Poon Pooey, I don't think I've ever seen either one of them take a crap since they were puppies. <laughs> I don't know where they do it. There's either got to be a big dog pile in the sky, or maybe they're just all over the place, way out there someplace. I think it's really what's going on. And so this is just kind of natural. And so you're rewarding this puppy for what it's going to be doing naturally, which means that it should be a very easy thing for you to learn or for the puppy to learn to do. Should be very easy. But mm -hmm. uh, with, with humans, we have been taught, uh, and it's really built into the culture, that a child should not be a child naturally. We have to train and educate that child and teach that child something in order for them to get along in the world. That you could say that, in fact, that every one of us is born a wild animal. And so there's, there's a certain balance that needs to be done. That if a child is never disciplined under any circumstances, never disciplined, he will probably, uh, if he ever is diagnosed by a psychiatrist, Thank will you. probably be diagnosed as a sociopath <laughs> or a psychopath, right? That if we are, um, uh, let us say, if the child is raised in a dog-eat-dog -dog environment, which is exactly opposite of what I'm talking about, a completely permissive environment, the dog or the, the human will become a uh, psychopath. But if they're uh, in a dog-eat-dog -dog environment, then they'll move back and forth between the victim and the aggressor. Which dog we all will spend time as a victim and time as the aggressor. That in fact, we wind up being the aggressor to ourselves and victimize ourselves. Because we've got both elements with it. Okay. Now, the, uh, the point that I'm making here is, is that often children in our society are overly socialized. That in fact, it's gotten really bad with time structure. I remember when I was a little kid, up until about the age of six, time to go to school. And I was all over the yard. I was all over the place. We went to the two-block tunnel. We were all over town doing anything that I wanted to do. Had complete freedom as a little kid. Now the little kids, they have what they call a helicopter mom. Saludos. Oh, okay. Where the mom, where the where the parents are looking out after the kids all the time. What that means is that we're going to wind up being far more socialized and uptight than we would be if we were given the freedom. There's always going to be a balance because I know that we were talking story a little bit before about a hundred years ago. Nobody got any education, which meant that everything was learned locally, including all of the worst elements of the little local society. But in fact, it, it seems like that when societies get insulated, they go really downhill into tribalism. That you can see that, in fact, that um, uh, within uh, immigration in the United States was that when, when a big city had a lot of different communities, for instance, in Detroit, you've got a Polish community, You've got uh, um, uh, an Italian community, 
you've got a bunch of whiteies and they all tend to get together. But one or two of those Polacks or maybe a Jew goes to Alabama and that child has got a problem because the, uh, the community that lives in is insular. They don't know anything about the outside world. And so anybody who comes in from the outside world is dangerous by, uh, by instinct. So um, our educational system is good in a way, but oftentimes the educational system is, is teaching the worst things or taught in the wrong way. Here's an example of that, uh, that a child who is raised in a household that has multiple languages like uh, Spanish and English or Thai and English or any, any combination, then the child has a propensity to learn both languages because he hears both of them. We, learn, we lose our ability to learn a new language at about the age of 12. There's a lot of stuff that happens with the human brain that changes things so that we slow down on our learning, we go into puberty and all kinds of weird stuff happens. And yet in our educational system, foreign languages are not taught in the first and second grade where the child is easily going to pick up a foreign language. They wait until high school. And now the foreign languages are really, really difficult to learn because the mind has already been uh, fixed in a way that makes the languages difficult to learn. So these are some of the problems that I find with our educational system is, is that we don't teach the children what they need to know at the right time for the learning. They teach it according to some syllabus or something that was invented, uh, what, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, in, uh, if you wanted to learn French in Dillon, South Carolina, the only place to learn it was in the 10th, 11th grade at high school. With a, with a French teacher. She's the only one in town that taught French. There was, by the way, in Dillon, South Carolina in the 1950s and 60s, no Spanish classes, but there was French and also Latin. Those were the only two languages that were taught, but they were still taught to the kids that were too old to learn the language. And so the kids didn't learn much French. So these are the kinds of things that are problematic with our um, educational system, but it's almost always winds up being out of balance. If we are, and we talk about balance in the sense that we can, we can be playful, we can be serious. We've got both sides of us. But the way that we are raised in our society is, is that people are raised to come out of their playfulness and come into the serious and then stay serious for the rest of their life, and they wind up being miserable for the rest of their life, serious and all. Because that, that playfulness was trained out of us in childhood. Now, the thing of it is, is that you could say, well, back in the old days when kids didn't get an education, that meant that they wound up being more playful for longer periods of time in their life because they weren't subject to the educational system that we have nowadays. So you could say that that in some cases, the educational system solved problems that the society had. And in other cases, like the one that we're talking about here, that the educational system and all of our modern technology is skewing us in a different direction so that our dukas now are different than they were 100 years ago. 
Now, another thing that I noticed, and this is in the Sutta number 38, where I figured out that the Buddha talked about that the young children who were raised in the time of the Buddha were raised in sensuality, and that's possibly because the people, the children that he was around were in wealthy families. And so the children at those ages just were allowed to go and do whatever they kind of wanted to do, and they were pleasure-seeking. And so the Dhamma that the Buddha developed for those people were because they were um, uh, sensually oriented, because those sens uh, sensual things were hard to come by, but people were after them. Now the sensual things are very easy to come by. I mean, 2,500 years ago, who had a cell phone? 2,500 years ago, who watched the internet? 2,500 years ago, who got to ride in a Mercedes? Nobody did, okay. Things, in fact, about the best thing that you could have would be a horse. So, in our society now, one of the things that has happened that is greatly different than the time of the Buddha is the fact that now, over the centuries, we have piled on rules, laws, rituals, so that every child is born into a society that is just completely packed down with rules leaving us almost all as victims to the rules that we have been living under our whole lives. So the mentality or the personality of the people in the time of the Buddha were different than the personality of the people that we have today, mostly because of the authoritarian oppression that came along with the educational systems, as well as the freedom to have sensual desires that the people didn't have 2,500 years ago. And so things are much more complicated today, which means that we need the Dhamma today even more than we did 2,500 years ago. That we're really messed up now. People were not nearly as messed up 2,500 years ago as they are now in general. So if we can understand that, then we can recognize, oh, that means that we have to really pay attention to how messed up our society is. Go ahead, Robert. Um, yeah, so this is uh, this ties into a podcast I was listening to recently. Um, a um, a uh, you know American uh, Eastern slash New Age you know spiritual practitioner guy was talking about how he felt that Buddhism. Um, and, and the whole like way of eradicating desire was far more suitable in a time where you didn't have great abundance, um, you know, the way that we have today in terms of, you know, abundant food, abundant water, abundant electricity, uh, medicine, medicine et cetera. Yes. And that in today's society, because there are so many opportunities and there's so much more abundance, people shouldn't actually be so afraid to pursue their their desires. They should chase after them and and enjoy that pursuit instead. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Ah, the problem is the chasing. They always the problem is the chasing. 
chasing all the way to Bangkok for Johnny Walker Black when it's not even there. That's the problem, okay, is the chasing that, in fact, you could say that the availability of all of these material goods that have become available in the past hundred years don't make them more available to each individual person. Each one of us still has to work and to suffer not getting what we want, while now there is just so many more things to want. <laughs> there is just so much more to want now, and so that even brings in more confusion, more doubt, more worries, more frustrations. And so um, uh, that point about, yeah, things are more available now, but that doesn't mean that they're more available on an individual's level. It just means that they're more available on, on a um, manufacturing goods level. So the things are manufactured, things are there, but look at all of this uh, complexity that's been added to where the human mind um, that was developed, what, 10, 12, 14, uh, 30,000 years ago, hasn't gone through the development that it needs to develop to handle the modern society that we live in. And so we wind up almost always being miserable when um, the philosopher would say, with all of these goods and all of this stuff in the world, why aren't we all happy with it? I mean, that's what we've been working on. We've been working on getting our technology together. For a thousand years, two thousand years, we've been working on getting our technology together. Look how good we've got it. I mean, we've got um, integrated circuits and we've got uh, a billion transistors on a chip and all kinds of things. So our um, our manufacturing is very, very technologically advanced. And as we do, the human society that's, that is taking advantage of this technological uh, breakthrough is no better off, worse off, in fact. We're worse off than we were before. Now there's more things to want, more things to be disappointed by, more rules to follow, more standards to keep up to. The kids are not allowed to play the way that they were uh, because there was nothing else to do with the kid but just to let him go play. Go to your room and go play. <laughs> yes, Robert. Right. Yeah, and two two comments on that. One is what they didn't have back then that we have today is a mass psychological warfare that's trying to get people to want things all the time, 24-7, you know, through advertising, our devices, et cetera. And there's this giant struggle, you know, ongoing struggle between people trying to be content and happy with their lives if they're lucky. <laughs> You know, and the and getting messages and from having the to deal not. with all the lies they've been told. That's another point that I haven't yeah. uh, 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 worked with too much. But in fact, you could say that all the rights, rules, rituals, laws, procedures, etc., like that, is nothing but the bucket where we carry our lies. And we have been told thousands of lies in our lifetime. And that what we need to do is to find a method that's going to free us from the lies we've been told. 
Well, the only way that we're going to be free from the lies that we've been told is by looking up, waking up, and recognizing that the way that we are doing things is based upon a pack of lies. And it's easy to pick up those pack of lies. Um, an example of it is, is that a particular product is no longer known by the name of that product. It's now known by the name of a brand that was selling that product. An example of that is Kleenex. Right? Kleenex is a brand name. The actual item is a tissue. But we will say, give me a Kleenex. Right? This is the kind of delusion that's built into it at such a deep level that we don't even recognize that we're constantly being lied to. We lie to ourselves. And so the waking up then back to this issue of the free will, we recognize that if our will has been told all of these lies, then my free will is only going to be free in the sense that it is allowed to roam within the box that these lies have created, that we really don't have that much free will. But one of the free wills that we still have is the will to live. And this is an important way of looking at it and the way of wrapping this talk up is to recognize that we do have a will to live and it's possibly the best feature that each one of us has is the will to live the will to stay alive, the will to take the next breath, the will to stay alive this moment. And the next part of it that's coming really in with the Dhamma is now to enjoy that we are alive, that we do have the will to live, that I do have the ability to take this next breath. Or in another way of going just one step further, that we do live in a paradise because we will that the environment that we're in is a paradise. Rather than being uh, following the lies that we've told, been told that our environment is a hellhole and needs to be fixed. That we don't live in a hellhole. We live in whatever world we create. And it's up to you to create the world that you're going to live in. But don't do it with the lies that you've been told your whole life. Do it through direct observation and get some new data. Now, Robert. Yeah, I, so so two things. So one is funny comment about dogs. Whenever, whenever I'm on the line with you, um, one of our dogs, Bowie here, always likes to come close to the call and listen to the Dhamma talk. It's very funny. Like this dog in particular really likes to come listen to the <laughs> the talks. It's it's very, you know, very hilarious. Maybe he was a monk in a past life, you know, I, I'm not sure, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he was a monk um, when he was a puppy. Yeah, Hi, maybe. Matt. Good to see you. Hi, Don Ronto, good to see you. You left hey, Robert. I'm glad to see you back, actually. Um, yeah, and then the, so, go ahead. Oh, so oh sorry. Talking, uh, go, ahead, go ahead, Robert. Um, so then the other comment I was going to make that was I thought was pretty interesting. I saw yesterday a video. Um, it was a TED Talk being given by an indigenous leader. 
and he was talking about how the his community had transformed in the last 50 years. He lives in the Amazon in the Colombian Ecuadorian part and how when he grew up um, there were no oil companies, there were no there's no deforestation going on, etc. And there was a sense that every single thing they needed was available to the for them in the jungle. And there was no mm-hmm. lack or want or desire. But once the oil companies came in and they destroyed the ecosystem, then they suddenly had this sense that they really needed to want things in order to defend their territory and also Mm -hmm. to bring stuff in because the abundance that was there for them is no longer available to them. They no longer felt nurtured in the same way by their environment once they had this Mm -hmm. invader. And I was curious to hear your thoughts on that. Perhaps that's maybe how it was in the time of the Buddha too, you know, where the natural environment was so much richer. Provided everything that they needed because they didn't have an education about what they needed that they didn't have because nobody knew about it. For instance, we all need a cell phone now. We all want a cell phone now, but in 1950, nobody wanted a cell phone. They didn't even know what it was. But in fact, have you ever heard of the expression hang up on somebody? Hang up on somebody? Yeah, yeah, hang up, right? That That's a common phrase that we use in telephone language, right? How do you hang up a cell phone? <laughs> uh, you, How do you, you hang uh, it up? <laughs> With the you string can't hang up a cell phone. You can push it, you can push the screen, but you can't hang it up. No, and uh, let us say a hundred years ago, and I can... You can go look for uh, uh, wall-mounted phones and see Google's um, thing. But the, the telephones in the really, really old days were wall-mounted, and they were wall-mounted uh, with the microphone up so that it could tilt up and down based upon your height. And then you would take the earpiece off of the, uh, the holder and put it to your ear and talk into the microphone and hold the earpiece. And when you wanted to finish the call, you put the earpiece back on its hook that's what we mean by hanging up is you hung up the earpiece we haven't had a telephone for a hundred years that had a a a way of hanging up and yet we still use the expression of hanging up on someone isn't that interesting we can't hang up on people anymore but we still talk about hanging up on people this is how our culture and the lies that we've been told. I mean, you guys have never seen a telephone. You'd have to go look at Google to find out the kind of telephone that I'm talking about. And I haven't seen one since I was 10 years old. And yet we still talk about hanging up. I mean, that may be an expression that only I would have. Do you guys ever use or ever hear the expression hang up on someone? I'm sure you do. Seems like it would be a common enough, right? So it's still part of our society, right? That's just another lie that we've been told. We don't hang up on people anymore. Why do we talk about hanging up on them? (laughs) And so this is one of the things that we can do with our Dhamma is begin to play with the language that we have. Because the language that we have um, is our intellectual way of understanding things. 
And we began to recognize that most of the problems that we have in our uh, existence is because of the way that we define the terms and the way that we look at stuff. The language that we use, et cetera, like that, which Robert was talking about in the sense of propaganda. Most advertisements are lies. They started off, I mean, you can see the, um, um, uh, the commercials for medicines. Now, when I was a kid in the 1960s, pharmace pharmaceutical companies did not advertise. No advertisements for pharmaceuticals. But nowadays, what they have almost invariably is a beautiful scene, a mountain, uh, a beach, a fancy building, something like that, with two elderly people, a man and a woman, while they play soft music. And then at the end, which is about uh, uh, well, uh, like a third into it, is when they start reading off the stuff that's required by law of all of the side effects. And if you listen to the side effects, you would wonder why would anybody want to buy that medicine? The answer is because all the visual and all the sounds with the music and all of that is supposed to create a pleasant feeling when you hear about that medicine. So you'll have a pleasant feeling because of the medicine based upon the imagery and the, uh, uh, the situation, rather than people listening to the dangers of this medicine. Yes, Matt. I didn't hear you mention this point, but um, on the prescription drug commercials, I frequently see that they show people being happy. And it's not just true for drug commercials, but generally advertisements show people like, if you get this service or product, you're going to be ecstatically happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, how about cars? When they advertise cars, don't they show kids running and jumping into the car? Yeah. yeah uh-huh. That's the way that it is, right, that they are actually selling happiness. But they're lying to you because they're saying that, oh, we're not really selling happiness. You've got to buy our product. And the happiness will kind of come along too. An example of that would be, uh, uh, have you ever heard of the term chick magnet? Yeah. Okay. What is a chick magnet? It's a car you can't afford. <laughs> but if you do get this car, somehow or another, it'll attract chicks. And what you really want is a chick, not the car. But you got to buy the car in order to get a chick. Right, that's what our whole society is based upon. It's based upon that set of lies. That in order for you to be happy, you have to buy something. You have to get what you want. And so the advertisers are going to make you want it, make you think that, oh, I will feel the way those people do who have it. That it will give me my happiness. And so what they're doing is they're actually promoting desire. They want you to be uh, in a state of desire. Our whole society is based upon people wanting to be in a state of desire and in the process, but never the conclusion of fulfilling that desire. They want you to stay in the process of it. And in fact, a lot of the pharmaceuticals are uh, mentioning that the pharmaceutical industries could find cures for things. And eventually they do. But in the beginning, all they want to do is eliminate the symptoms. 
so that they can keep you buying the drugs and keep sick. If they cured you, you'd stop buying their drugs. But if they can uh, cure the symptoms, then they'll keep you to keep buying the drug over and over again. An example of that is Tylenol. People will buy Tylenol or aspirin. In the old days, it was aspirin. And people would have aspirin and more aspirin and more aspirin and more aspirin. And they would feel good for a little while. But if they would take their mind off of whatever they were thinking about, then, then they wouldn't give themselves a headache. And therefore, they wouldn't need the aspirin. <laughs> and so or the Tylenol or whatever they're selling nowadays. This is the, the idea then is, is that our society, as sophisticated it is, is more sophisticated than the humans that live in that society. That we're all a bunch of doofuses that are capable <laughs> of managing ourselves 30,000 years ago, but in this, this society that we're in now, we're all incompetent. <laughs> and therefore, we feel like a victim. And everyone goes, even the CEOs of the companies, of the big companies, they're all victims. Everyone's a victim. And we have a whole society full of victims. We're all victimized. And this is where the teaching of the Buddha really comes into play because uh, 2,500 years ago, everybody felt a victim, but it was really simple back then to figure out that, oh, I don't have to be victimized. I can come out of it. But now the society that we have in is every child is just layered after layer after layer of lies, layer after layer after layer of rules, layer after layer of uh, making your mind feel victimized, where in fact you could, if you really started to practice it, begin to feel like a champion. To rise above it all, to get above this world. That you heard me talk about um, everyone is an emperor of our own personal pile of dirt. The question is, why is it most people are buried under their own pile of crap? And then many meditators are trying to call themselves out of the pile of crap. When the real point is, is just to sit on top of your world, to be on top of your own pile of crap. Now, in that regard, it doesn't mean that we remove the pile of crap completely. No, we just sit on top of it happily. You're never going to be perfect, but you can be happy imperfect. But it's an attitude that we change. Everything about the teaching of the Buddha winds up being this issue of Sama Sankapa, which is right, noble attitude. To have the right attitude about life. And the attitude is, you're a winner. You're in charge here. You're having fun here. This is your life. If you can will to be alive, why can't you will to have a joyful life? Your choice. But we have to practice. Why do we have to practice? It's because look how many years we've been practicing according to the society that we were living under. We have been trained to be a victim. Now it's time to reverse that. But it only does a little bit at a time. So if 10,000 times you put a kilogram of um, uh, victimhood, in order to balance that out, we're going to have to put another 100 kilograms of joy to balance that out. So we have to actually practice being joyful. 
because we're already in the habit of being a victim. This is why we have to practice. This is the, the issue over and over and over again. Never mind, start again. Never mind, start again. Yeah, I feel victimized again. Never mind. Buck up, get our mojo, and get back on top of your pile of dirt. <laughs> Matt, you got a question. I have a related question to this issue of like victimhood being piled on top of one another over a period of many years. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of people can become joyful at home without like visiting Watts. So I'm just curious if you have anything to say about maybe some people have um, enough conditioning that they need to have immersion periods at Watts. Well, I would say that that would be very nice if people could find um, <clears throat> a refuge to get away from it all. And you mentioned going home. Yes, and going home is often for many people quite a relief. But there's another uh, darker side to that, and that is, is that when we are out in society, we have rules to follow. We have to obey the, the traffic issues and whatnot like that. And so when we go home, we can then do what we wanted to do at work that we couldn't do at work. And um, what I'm referring to now is, is uh, sometimes referred to in psychology as the pecking order. So the boss, the big boss, yells at one of the managers. The manager yells at one of the employees. The employee yells at the um, janitor. The janitor comes home and yells at his wife. This is the point, okay, that we're getting at. Once he goes home and yells at his wife, because he can't yell at uh, the people that at work, they're all more important than he is. And so he has to come home and yell at his wife. His wife yells at the kid. The kid yell, uh, kicks the dog. In other words, we find um, that pecking order, and we only pick on the people that we think that we can win against because we're victims to the people who are above us in the pecking order. Also, what this means is, uh, Matt, is, is that when we go home, we feel okay to let our hair down. I don't see many people here with much hair. But if uh, <laughs> they let their hair down in the sense of letting their worst stuff out. We, we often hear the term domestic violence. That very violence is either going to be in the house or in a closed bar, but it takes a very special, unique situation for people to be out violent on the streets. Normally, we reserve our violence because of our society. You're not supposed to be violent. Therefore, you've got to hide your violence. And so we take it home. So going home doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to be happy. It, what it means about going home is, is that now they don't have to follow the rules that society has. And some of us will feel relieved by that and can just hang out and do nothing and say, well, I'm really glad I don't have to be at work right now. And other people, the majority of us, are still going to stay grumpy. And that we're going to take it out on the people that are, that are in our family. That the kid is going to kick the dog because he can't kick his mom. 
and the mom is going to yell at the kid because she can't yell at the husband and the husband can't yell at so it goes back up that way and so it always keeps going downhill in this pecking order so figure out where you are in the pecking order that you're in and every situation will have different pecking orders and then find out a way of stepping out of that pecking order to become above that pecking order that you're not part of that pecking order that you're Lokatara, you're transcendent, you're super mundane, you're above it all. You do not have to get caught in that pecking order. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So it doesn't matter how um, entrenched, hardcore, or massive the pecking order is, we all still have an opportunity to see the pecking order that we're in right here, right now, and to come out of it. So this goes back to the issue about eating when at night we're going to feel um, upset stomach. The issue is not, do I open this packet of food and eat it all and then worry about how I feel, but whether that I can do this with each bite. That we start breaking things down into this particular moment. What are we doing right here, right now? Because this is what needs to be changed. Not the big stuff, but just the little stuff. What's happening at this moment? Because if you start paying attention to that sweet, you may say, wait a minute. The thought of that sweet was actually more tasty than the actual sweet itself. That this is not as good as I thought it would be. This donut has been in the refrigerator too long and is no longer enjoyable. Yeah. Can you guys hear me? I had to take my earphones out. But, um, yes, I can hear you. Yes, we can hear cool. you. The, I had a shocked look on my face because I realized when you suggested that strategy, because um, what will happen for me is I usually feel the choice, the kind of tipping point usually happens one or two minutes before I actually take whatever action it is, you know? Um, and then, but then I kind of, so like, for example, when I eat the cookies, I usually decide to eat the cookies. I'm usually kind of like battling it out. Um, like when I'm in the other room and I'm kind of like thinking about it and no, no, no. And then there's a point where I come to, and that's the decision point. And that's really when things kind of, the feeling really shifts from being like a desire that I'm having a battle about to just being something I've kind of accepted that I'm going to do it. Or it's, that's when the choice is made. But a choice is a kind of unique feeling because choices don't really feel like things that we do in terms of like picking up a pencil. It's kind of hard to, it's easy to know when I picked up the pencil, I could put it down and, oh, I picked it up 10 seconds ago. It's very distinct what it is and what it feels like to kind of pick up something physical. A choice is like a, men a mental restructuring of your mind or your attention or something. It's really mm -hmm. hard to actually figure out what a choice is and what it feels like. Because it seems like no choice is the same. It's like a snowflake or something. Each choice is different. What it feels like in terms of, you know, is how much, anyways, like desire versus will. Um, <clears throat> so usually that's how it will happen for me is when I make a choice or a decision to pursue a desire, I'll usually feel it kind of like I'll feel a battle in my mind. And then at some point I'll just kind of give it up and be like, ah, I'll just go do it. I'm just going to do mm -hmm. the thing, eat the cookie. And then there's, but the, that's, that's what it is for me or the way that I'm kind of set up now is I'll have the battle 
when I'm not even in the kitchen and then I decide on it and then I immediately go for it. And, and so that's mm-hmm. kind of like what I'm calling the decision point when things shift and I go for it. Um, as I okay, realize so that that's a kind of, huh? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, it's just kind of hard for me to hear with the, the way that my phone is on right now, but so that in that practice, it's kind of like I make one decision and then the next time I have consciousness again is three minutes later when I've eaten all the cookies and uh, the milk is gone, you know, and suddenly I'm uh-huh. kind of sitting there and then I'm like, what did I do? Um, but I could kind of see how if I was eating the cookie and I really didn't want to cook the cookie because every time I give into something, it's usually a very benign thing. I usually don't try this with really harmful things. I usually try to practice restraint on something that's not very bad if I did get it, like the cookies. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyways, and then I started to try and practice that practice practice by, you know, eating one bite, being mindful of the cookie, being eating one bite, being mindful of my goal or eating one bite. And if I did that practice, I would feel so guilty by the third or fourth bite that I probably wouldn't eat but one cookie or half a cookie, right? So there's some kind of a... Ah, yeah. but you don't have to feel guilty. You could feel wise instead. Oh, I'm waking up to the fact that I, my idea of this cookie was better than the actual cookie itself. Here's an example of yeah. that. Have you ever eaten day-old food like a hard piece of bread or maybe French fries? Day-old French fries or, I mean... At least day-old donuts are tolerable, but day-old french fries, we eat them anyway out of habit. Instead of eating this french fry and say, this thing is hard, it's greasy, it's cold, and it has no relationship to the thought of uh, the french fries that I have in my mind. This french fry is not good enough, and then I eat it anyway. Yeah, okay. it's, well, like, we've, well, I... I what I was told and kind of what I've always learned is that you don't make choices on a moment by mind moment basis. What I've been kind of told and what my experience has shown is that we make a choice and then we carry it out rather than that every moment mindlessly is carry it out. And that's kind of, yeah, that's what it, what I've noticed too is it's, it's much more easier to do it. It's more pleasant. It kind of works with this certain archetype or setup of the mind you know, that really prioritizes these kind of base instincts of like, you know, minimize pain and high pleasure monkey mind kind of behaviors. They're set mm-hmm. up in such a way that like, I don't know, you know, that it just doesn't, it doesn't really occur to be mindful of, or to ask kind of those things like in each moment, like what's the desire, what's the dukkha in this moment, what's the dukkha, what's the pleasure or, you know, what, like, I don't know. It's just kind of like a different practice of being, you know, different mindset to, to wake I, up I, and watch I feel what like we're I make doing. five decisions a day. I don't feel like I make 30,000, but I probably make closer to the 30,000, you know? Well, at least a thousand, at least yeah. 1,000. I don't know how long your days are, but uh, here's something that you're, we're really, really talking about something that can be found in Sutta number 10 in the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, which is the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, where the Buddha talks about 
being mindful of what your hands are doing, moving, stretching, that in fact, maybe it is 30,000. Here's an example of that. Here's an object that I have in my hand. How much decision does it take to pick this stuff up? That in fact, it is a can of uh, ointment. It's uh, the same thing as you would find, you call it monkey bomb or tiger bomb or whatever like that, okay? And so I've got a reason to pick it up, like I've got an itch. And so moving my hand towards it is a decision. Touching it is a decision. Lifting it up is a decision. Opening it up may take multiple decisions because these things are pretty hard to open. Now I've got it open, okay? Now. What am I going to do with it open? Well, I've already made the decision a, a while ago, but I've got to make that decision again that I'm going to take some of that stuff and put it on my arm. So I've still got it in my hand and I've already done 10 decisions. Now I've got to have the decision to put the lid back on it, put it back, putting it down, taking my fingers away and withdrawing my arm. Look how many decisions are done in there. And this is where the Buddha is beginning to invite us is to watch what we're doing with every little tiny decision that we make. Watch the hands and start playing with it in the sense of instead of reaching the way that we normally reach, we're not thinking about it at all. We just go ahead and grab because we're using the old decision that we made. And so the new decisions are very fast. But if we slow things down, then we can recognize, oh, I'm making a decision to touch this thing. And so as I approach it, I'm going to do something. And one of the techniques that we use is to stretch the fingers out. But in fact, if you've seen some of the old movies like Nesteratu or the Dracula movies, just as he's about to bite the, uh, the neck, his hands are like this okay so we need to start paying attention to what our hands are doing as we're touching things and so as we touch something which is the first part of the hand that touches it do i touch it with the thumb do i touch it with this finger how do i touch it when i'm picking it up normally what happens with the human mind is is that we're no longer interested in the touching and the picking up we're interested in the object itself so now I'm thinking about the object, but I'm not thinking about where each of the five fingers are holding the object. For instance, this little finger is touching it right there. The thumb is touching it right there. So looking and paying attention to our hands will give you the idea of looking at the decision process. But we forget all about our hands and start thinking about the object. So start paying attention to what the body is doing. Because every movement that the body does is a new decision. It's a new choice that we're making. And that normally we don't want to go through that choice process to make it easy. We just follow the old choices. That's called habit. We just go about to the old habit because that keeps us from having to make new choices. But the right effort is to look at what you're doing, knowing that you've got a choice at every step along the way. And so that whole box of cookies is not going to be eaten. We're going to mindfully open it 
mindfully open the package inside, mindfully get one cookie, mindfully look at that cookie and ask the question, cookie, are you, are you actually as good as I think you are? Because if you are as good as I think you are, then I will eat you. But if you're not as good as I think you are, then why should I bother continuing eating you? I can put a half a cookie down. Or I can give it to the puppy. I don't have to eat it just because I had made the decision to open the pack. So we have a new choice, a new decision to make with every movement of the body, every motion that we take, everything that we do, start paying attention. This is the sati, to wake up, to watch what we're doing with every little step. Now, this is very good uh, for the day-to-day -day living, but we can also recognize the, and train when we're just sitting. When we're just sitting in meditation, you can call it that. Just sitting in meditation, what do we do? Where are we moving? What are our hands doing? Can we hold them still? Can we still process the data that the hands are giving us even when the hands are not doing anything? So being in the present moment is really valuable when we're eating. And in fact, the Buddha in several sutras, we uh, remember Robert when we did sutra number two in the uh, Saba Asaba Sutta, there is where we find the food reflection. Wisely, we will eat this food. Paying attention to every bite. That when we're crunching that cookie in the mouth, we pay attention to what the mouth is doing. Are we actually getting the enjoyment out of the cookie? That we don't pull our food down mindlessly. That we start paying attention. We mull the food over in the mouth. We find that we, we get the texture of the food. We start paying attention to it. And pretty soon we recognize that, oh, I've had enough food. Paying attention to this eating is <laughs> uh, too much work that if I just scoff it down mindlessly then I can get it all eaten but if I mindfully chew bite off each chew uh, and take a, um, uh, a gander at what I'm doing what does it taste like what is the swallowing then in the fact one of the things that the Buddha recommends that after you take a bite you put your utensils down, or in the case of the bowl, we withdraw our hand from the bowl, leaves of hands alone while we're chewing and mindfully thinking about the food, and we're watching normally what we uh, would want to do in this regard of being mindful is to chew the food until it becomes almost a liquid or a paste, and then we swallow the liquid. If there is anything strong or solid, like a corn um, uh, kernel or a grain of rice or maybe toast that's still a hard piece, that we're going to continue to chew it until it is ready to be swallowed. And then at the end, we check the whole mouth to make sure that there's no grains of rice or corn or anything like that that's still left in the mouth, that we've completely emptied the mouth. Only then will we go back and put the hand in the bowl. But how many of you, while you're eating a plate of food, your utensils there, you're playing with the food while, you're, while you've got some in the mouth? 
So start watching what you're doing, slow down your eating, and pay attention to each bite that we have. Now, now we've got a whole bunch of decisions. We're going, if we start living our life like that, we are thinking about it in the realm of about 30,000 choices a day. Every choice that when you're turning your beard, even as you're moving one index finger, that's a choice. Where you've got your thumb, that's a choice. Stroking it is a choice. Nodding your head up and down and raising your eyebrows, that's a choice. <laughs> but the decisions you're making, and so this is the, this is the whole point about free will, is, is that look how much free will you are exercising. Well, my theory is that everything is will. So every action is always, every, everything is an action, action of will. And uh, so the real mystery is this other component to like, mindful will or conscious action and then mindless or you know like there's just a there's a um clouding element or obviously it's the mind is doing something the way that our mind is functioning is kind of like you know set up in a certain way to take one like choice or one action that's going to like you know promote our survival like you know eat some food and then like kind of consume something and then think about where to get the food next right so it seems like the default programming is one conscious action or one conscious decision or one conscious moment every you know or maybe five minutes every uh six hours or something like that or it just seems like there's these wide long periods of mindless activity and action, even though we're all conscious and awake in a certain way, according to science, and seems like we're really doing things. But this element of conscious awareness of what we're doing, and um, you know, it, it's, a, it's like a distinct, different mindset, mm -hmm. consciousness state. A good example of that is driving a car. We all struggle as teenagers to learn to drive a car. Some of us never learn to drive a stick shift because we have automatics. I wonder what happens in 15 or 20 years from now to where the child doesn't even know how to start a gas engine because he's driving and has been for his whole life in an electric vehicle. They don't even know what to do with a gas vehicle. But after you learn to drive, now that we're tooling down the road, we don't have to think about every little thing that's going on. We just drive according to the habits that we picked up when we were learning to drive. Right? And so all of this is mostly motor movements with the hands and the brakes and the, uh, the foot movements and all of that kind of stuff to drive the car. That gives the mind complete freedom to eat a McDonald's to talk on the cell phone, to hang up on somebody, to yell at the kids, and all kinds of things that are going to put the situation so long as the road is the same as it was, we don't have to pay attention to it. Unfortunately, road scenes change always, which means that, uh, um, that people like that are prone to accidents because they're driving mindlessly. 
that one of the things that I have is kind of humorous. I saw this in a movie and it, and it rang so true that a rich man who has a chauffeur does not want an ordinary taxi driver chauffeur. He wants a Formula One race car retiree. Why? Because in that very, very high speed stuff, you've got to watch where you're going or you're going to die. You have to watch where you're going when you're going at 200 miles an hour or whatever like that. So that's the kind of guy that the rich man wants as a chauffeur is somebody who is going to know how to not only knows how to drive that car, but knows enough to know that he's got to watch where he's going. And then he's going to be safe. But most drivers are not interested in watching where they're going. They're more interested in getting to their destination. And while they're on the way to the destination, they're going to be eating McDonald's or hanging on their cell phones or yelling at the kids or gawking, rubbernecking, all different kinds of things that we are doing that make our driving dangerous. Okay, now take that out of the car and start talking about living our lives and we live our lives the same way. We're not paying attention to what we're doing. Are you actually paying attention to what you're doing with that pencil or pen that you've got? Swinging it around? Are you actually watching that? Are you actually mindful of what you're doing? Like me, I'm mindful of the way that I've got my hands, twirling my thumbs ever so slowly, just having a joyful, okay? So that's what we do is we start paying attention to what we're doing moment by moment by moment, because otherwise we don't have any choice. We're doing it by habit. But when we wake up and are mindful, Shati is there. Now we have a choice. That's the whole point is we don't have a choice until Shati, until we wake up. And once we wake up, now we've got a choice. So, practice waking up. Practice sati. Where do we practice that? With each breath, making sure that this is a long in-breath. Sati. Making sure that it's a long out-breath. That's sati. When you, when you move your hand, be mindful of that. When you withdraw your hand, be mindful. When you put something in your mouth, be mindful of what it tastes like. What is the texture of the food? Which side of the mouth are you chewing it on? What are your favorite teeth? This is the way of beginning to watch what you're doing and how things taste. And as you do that, you have a choice about every bite. Every time that the mouth goes up and down, you've got a choice. If you know you've got a choice. Or you can just turn it on to automatic pilot. And then you don't have any choice about eating that whole bag of cookies. But if so, you're paying attention to how each cookie tastes, you're going to wind up not eating so many of them. You're going to wind up taking that cookie out of your mouth and giving it to the puppy instead. <laughs> yeah, so Todd, you got your hand up. Good. Yeah, um, so, okay. I, I I agree, you know, with all that, that it, it definitely feels that way. But I know in, from personal experience, from having done a lot of, like, you know, self-inquiry kind of things, the more you pay attention, the more you realize and the more I've 
found, I mean, well, first off, you know, where is the self that is having this control? But then also there, the more I, you know, am aware of what's going on, the more I realize I have no idea how anything is happening. I have no, you know, I have no idea how I'm saying the words that I'm saying right now. Like it feels like there's choice, but the more you pay attention to it, the more you realize that I have no idea how to even move my arm, you know? Uh -huh. So, <laughs> I know what you mean. Two yeah. two examples of that. Have you ever been driving the car and all of a sudden you wake up and you look around and say, how did I get here? Oh, yeah, that's for sure happened. But even like if I'm very mindfully now going to reach out and pick up the this mug, I have no idea how to actually move my arm or close my fingers around it or lift it like like it's there's there's a as aware as i can be of the whole thing the more you're aware of it the more you realize there's no you know concept of a of a thing here that's doing it it's or how to do it i couldn't tell somebody how to move their arm i i know exactly what you're talking about in fact there's a joke about it or the story about it is the story of the centipede that the uh the daddy long leg spider that has eight legs he walked up and he saw the centipede going along and he says, you know, having six and eight legs, having eight legs, that's a little bit of work. I don't really understand what I'm doing with this. How in the world can you, a centipede, work and walk around with a hundred legs? And the centipede thought about it and he lifted up one leg and then he, lift, and then he fell over. And in pain, he says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I use it. I could do it until you ask. All right. What does that mean? That means that we do things by such habit that we don't even know the procedures. So we need to start looking at all of these little tiny choices that we're making along the way because they were choices. They were just pre-programmed as part of the habit or part of the program. And so now we're going to start breaking that program down and start looking at every line of code because every line of code is a choice that we're making. This is what we mean by free will. Can we do that? Can we start watching what we're doing? Because if we're watching what we're doing, we've got a choice. And if we're not watching what we're doing and going by the old program, then we don't have any choice about it. Okay. So, sorry to say, but it's taken me about two hours to get to the punchline of the joke, and I'll lay it on you now. And that is, is that there is, they say that there is no such thing as free will, because if you are doing things mindlessly, you are, you're following an old program, and there's very little will in there. But if you start to wake up to see what you're doing step by step, then that takes effort. It takes some energy. It takes some work. It takes something of value to do. In that regard, if you develop it like this, it will not be free will. It will be expensive will. <laughs> there is no such thing as free will. Will is expensive. Even if you're laying under a pile of rubble, that because the building has been bombed and you're laying under there and it's really hard for you to breathe, you're still going to breathe. You're going to take that will to do it.
to stay alive. Will is not free. Will takes effort. That's the whole joke. Will takes effort. It is not free. But if we go along according to our destiny, that makes it look like it's free will. Or in fact, we don't have any choice. So there's no will at all in that regard. So he who lives by the sword is going to die by the sword because he is not mindful enough to recognize how dangerous it is for an old man to go around threatening young dudes with a sword. He's going to get his head cut off if he keeps doing that. He needs to stop. Okay? So your cookies are the same way. That You need to be mindful of those cookies because those cookies are dangerous. They're going to give you heartburn if you keep eating them. So we need to find where is your limit. Start looking at what you're doing. Pay attention to this cookie. This bite. This mouth movement. That's the way that we break it down, is so that you have a will. Take your will, knowing that it's expensive, that the whole point about, uh, well, let's say it this way, that on the Eightfold Noble Path, the actual method to come out of one's suffering, guess what? Will is there. Where? In right effort. We have to take the effort. Will is not free. We have to take the effort to come out of our bad habits. And how do we do that? As quickly and with as much uh, time discrimination as possible. So we don't say that, oh, I'm going to make a decision two or three times a day. No, we're going to start looking at it that we take a thousand. And then pretty soon we recognize that we're making 30,000 uh, wills every day. Over and over and over again, we're going to break down these habits into their constituent component parts and recognize that there is a step of will or a step of effort in each one of them. And that you can do it. You're the champion here. That so long as we're under habits, now the results we don't have any uh, choice about. And so that's the ignorance. The ignorance is going by the habit. The wisdom is to watch every movement, to get into the habit of watching every movement, every breath, every uh, cookie, every, when I say every, I'm talking about basically this cookie, this breath. If we talk about every, then the students will say, oh, well, I can't do it every time. I'm such a victim. Well, then don't use the word every, use the word this cookie, this one, this present cookie, this present breath, this present bite, this present hand movement. Yes, Robert. Um, yeah, I just wanted to share one fun sati that, that I've found recently. Um, and I, um, I work as a writer and I've recently, um, had the task of writing social media for a financial institution. And um, it's been very fun because they want really tight character counts, you know, no more than 150 characters per post or 75 in some cases. And so you really have to watch each individual character 
Anytime you can cut out words to replace them with a shorter one, you know, take three words, replace with one, you do it. And it's a really fun game. And I just thought, you know, since we live in such a text-based uh, world these days, I, I think it's just fun in general to think about how you communicate over text. You know, like, use fewer words. Can you be more economical? You know, um, can you use punchier words that are more fun to read, et cetera. And so um, it's been really fun and doing that. And I'm for people to take a look when they write when they write a text, you know, each letter, each character, each word. It makes a big difference, you know. Mm -hmm. Another point on that would be not just short, but clear. Yes. Short exactly. and clear. That's uh, um, a problem that we often have. Many times we can re make it very short, but not understandable. <laughs> right. And sometimes we make it way too long and too complicated, and it's still not understandable. Right, which is also funny because the topic I'm mainly writing about is fixed income and bonds, which is a pretty esoteric topic. <laughs> And so you have to make that easy to understand, which is a whole challenge, which is, is fun for me. Um, but <laughs> Corey, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, that sounded like really fun topic to me, fixed income and bonds. I'm really into like business and those kind of things. I feel like spirituality is like um, spirituality and mind and psychology is like one of the big loves of my life so to say like a, it's a natural talent for me so i always like to learn and read and i like to think and use my mind and then like the other one the other thing that i feel called to in life is like business so like it's sometimes the really boring monotony stuff about business like working capital management like uh, asset portfolios or worksheets i don't know they just seem like oddly appealing to me and really fun so that's how i kind of know it's like my gift or my thing because um, it just has a natural glitter to it for me. So, um, and I, when I'm reading it, I could kind of tell how dry and boring, boring it would be for some people, like maybe more of an artistic type. But um, I, I have like business artistry, I guess you know. So I really like that kind of thing. Nice. Okay. Well, as uh, as Robert is saying, that means that with this, we can mindfully break it down. Just like we're mindfully breaking down the hand movements and mindfully breaking down the chewing of the food to start looking at the smaller things. So you can do that also with the um, the financial. That in yeah. fact, I've gotten it down so simple now is I've only got one question and that will Tesla go up today? <laughs> <laughs> But keeping it simple is the way to uh, to go by breaking it down to the to the to the constituent component parts and recognize that you've got choice with every one of them. Every little action is done by choice. What did you say your one question was? Am I going to feel better today? No, my one question is: Will Tesla go up today? Oh, will Tesla? I thought you said, will my mood go up? And I was like, that's a probably really good mindset to have. Like, just kind of, uh, you know, like, 
oh, I set was a, a level of joy for the day and just be like, this is my level of joy. Anything makes me go below it, I'm going to question it. I'm going to stay mindful of it. I don't know. It just kind of seemed like an interesting technique. I was like, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll wake up tomorrow morning and I'll say, will my mood go up? The, uh, the idea is that over time you train your mindset, you build your happiness and then mm -hmm. you just kind of like every day, because um, I don't know, that's kind well, of we were talking about that earlier. That question with the doubt built into it, we can have it uh, stated. What what am I doing right now to make the mood go up? <laughs> yeah. I can do this. I can do this. OK, that's yeah. in other words, taking the doubt out of it out of it because you don't have any doubts like like that the reason that i mentioned tesla was because right now it is so volatile <laughs> up and down and up and down and up and down i mean it's been to over 1200 and this down to uh and it was down to about 600 and now it's close to 900 because it's wow. up and down and up and down and up and down and that's a lot the of is can you be okay whether the stock goes up or the stock goes down? Because it's going to do a change. Today is up and tomorrow it's down. Up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. <laughs> Can you be happy with it up and down? Yeah, that's interesting because that's that's why I stopped investing. Uh, and I've taken about a year off in 2020. I got really close. I almost made like 10,000 on doggy coin, but after, uh, about six months of that investing, it kept making my mood. It was driving me crazy. I would feel it agitated will. all day. And so I decided I'm not going to invest anymore until I have the training to not be bothered by my investment. So right now I have a kind of long-term autopilot. They pay dividends of like 2%. It's really horrible. It's mostly just beating inflation. Uh, but it's uh, it's an investing mindset where I don't care about, I'm not- You don't care. That's, the, that's yeah. the right mindset. Because if you are, if the stock goes up and you go up and the stock goes down and you go down, that means that you are the stock. That happens yeah. also with <laughs> politics. That if you're a Democrat and things go good for the Democrats, you're up. And when things go bad for the Democrats, you're down. It's better yeah. not to be a Democrat. Better not to be a Republican because things are up and down and up and down and up and down. So uh, in that regard, yes, I can ask the question, does the Tesla stock go up today or does the Tesla stock go down today? But it's not me that's going up and down. I'm okay. Yeah, I just found another great way to tie this into the Dhamma. You know, Warren Buffett's um, a teacher of investing, Benjamin Graham, the founder of Value Investing, wrote, wrote a book called The Intelligent Investor, where he says the way that an investor should see the market is as a schizophrenic. And it is not, you do not want to talk to a schizophrenic every day. You know, you won't get anything, you won't find anything <laughs> of value in doing that. So... So what you want to do instead is find companies that if the company went bankrupt today and they had to liquidate all of their assets, would those assets be worth more than what the price of the company is? And and the whole idea is looking oh, at things. Oh, so you're a uh, Romney, right? Okay. Well, it's uh, it's value investing. That Romney did private equity, which was different, but similar, but different. But 
it's well, destroying a company it. to get the parts out of it. I mean, they're they're about to start doing that now. That they're saying that oh, if you die, that means that somebody else is going to get your organs. Well, the thing was, is he wouldn't say to actually do that to the company, but just to have that mindset. And the idea being, what is this actually worth? You know, is it actually a worthwhile thing to invest in? Which is in some sense similar to asking yourself, is my emotionally investing in whatever I'm choosing to emotionally invest in something that is actually worthwhile? Or is am I following a trend? Am Excellent I being manipulated? Point. To get away from it uh, in the sense of the, the money and the stock market and all of that. But look at the emotional investment that you put into stuff. That's another thing to start to be mindful of. For instance, you can have that same sort of um, emotional investment in opening a bag of cookies, eating them all, and feeling um, nauseous. Right? It's the same thing. is the buying of the stock, the stock goes down. Right? Except that uh, it's easier for us to say, well, I am not the stock. I am not Tesla. But it's really hard to say, I am not this bellyache. <laughs> <laughs> We're much more likely to identify with the bellyache, but most people, in fact, that's the whole misery of the stock market. Another point about the stock, I wouldn't call him necessarily a schizophrenic. I would call him a criminal who is acting schizophrenic because that's what the stock market really is all about is this competition among criminals. Who can be the worst criminal without getting caught in it? Sometimes we get a Madoff and sometimes we get an, uh, an Enron and they get caught at it, but most of the crooks don't get caught. But they still wind up being miserable anyway because their money does not bring happiness. But their money does bring the fear of getting caught, the fear of disaster. Now that I've got all of this, I've got to keep it. I've got to keep it. <laughs> Instead of recognizing I was okay without it before I had it, and now I'm going to be without it now. And so um, to go along with this whole point, not looking at it from the perspective of the stock market and investments, but look at it in the sense of your currency is now your time. How are you going to spend your time? Are you going to spend your time by investing in something that gives you good dividends? Are you going to be spending your time out of habit that doesn't work so well? Eating yesterday's french fries, for instance, or eating a whole bag of cookies mindlessly doesn't wind up us getting any value or pleasure out of it at all, but we do it that way anyway. That's like the same thing as a day trader. Once you get in it, too, you, you're stuck in it. You've got to mindfully get yourself out of it because otherwise you'll be stuck in it as a habit. So this is the whole teaching for today is, is that you do not really have a free will, but you do have a will. And you have to take the effort to expand that will. And you can have the, if you take the right effort, you can have a marvelous, happy life. 
you're going to have to put some effort into it because otherwise you're going to be habit bound. So this is a good talk today. Yeah, I really appreciated it. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and finish this off. We've really had a ball today. It's been over two hours. Uh, Robert, you've been off for a while. Uh, do you have any? Anything to add before we finish? Not Robert Cohen, but uh, Robert. I don't even know your last name. <laughs> <laughs> the younger Robert. Robert, the, he's not here. <laughs> All right. Does anybody else have anything to say? Todd, what do you have to say? Thank you. Thank you. Don't worry. Be happy. Or <laughs> be happy. I've heard that before. <laughs> Matt, do you have anything to say? Nothing to add here. All right. Well, I I feel uh, compelled to go do something. Hang on just a second. I'll be right back. <laughs> You see a little honey badger? That's what I'm naming her. Honey badger. Honey badger. So she's so ferocious sometimes. Yeah, yeah. she's got I love the she's the runt the of the litter, so she's the smallest one, and she'll like get really aggressive on the big ones and they'll be like, leave me alone. <laughs> she's a real honey badger. Yeah. Oh, look at this. This is one. our new rat dog. This is a rat terrier. I looked on the internet to find that she uh, is not necessarily a Jack Russell. She's much more of a rat terrier. Because you can tell by the, the big ears that she has, as well as uh, the behaviors and whatnot. Oh, there you are. <laughs> Her name is Panda. Panda? Panda. <laughs> That's because she's black and white. Kitty named her Panda. She's on Kitty standing here. She wants to know what we're doing. Here, Kitty. Panda is Kitty's puppy. So anyway, I'm glad to see all of us uh, dog fans. <laughs> Man's best friend. <laughs> yes. Wisdom is a good uh, uh, competitor with dogs is man's best friend. Wisdom. Look at what you're doing. Absolutely. Okay. Does anybody have any final words before we finish this conversation today? Everybody good. All right, guys, thank you so much. This has been a marvelous talk. I think that, uh, that you guys have gotten something out of it about free will, especially my little joke. There's no such thing as free will. It's expensive. <laughs> you got to pay for it. You got to put in the effort. Love it. Then you'll get the value. Okay, guys, see you. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you.